0: Anna Lee, who do you think is the most popular science fiction author in Silicon Valley right now?
1: I don't know. I guess if you forced me to answer, I would have to say probably like Isaac Asimov or maybe Robert Heinlein
0: that's what i thought too and you know when i started researching this episode i was like oh we'll we'll talk about asimov's influence on silicon valley but after i did some looking into it what i found kind of shocked me the most popular and beloved science fiction author in silicon valley by a huge margin is ayn rand the author of anthem The Fountainhead, and Atlas Shrugged is a major inspiration to tech billionaires like Steve Jobs, Travis Kalanick, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, and countless others. And we're going to get into it. You're listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction author. My latest book is Promises Stronger Than Darkness.
1: And I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction, and my latest novel is called The Terraformers.
0: So today's episode is all about Ayn Rand's influence on Silicon Valley and, you know, how she's shaping the technology that we're all using. And we'll also talk about Ayn Rand in science fiction. We're going to be joined by University of San Diego philosopher Matt Spalinski, co-author of the recent book The Individualists, and also science fiction author Matt Ruff, who included a... Very strange version of Ayn Rand as a character in his novel Sewer, Gas, and Electric. That's right. We've got a diverse panel of experts today. Two white guys named Matt.
1: I feel like that's really on brand for Ayn Rand. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. And they're
1: both they're both lovely and
0: delightful. I'm really excited to talk to both of them. And in our mini episode next week, we're gonna be talking about dystopias generally, since dystopias are a huge thing theme in Ayn Rand's work. And like what I think is like the major problem with a lot of dystopias.
1: All right. By the way, did you know that this podcast is entirely independent and funded by you, our listeners, through Patreon? That's right. If you become a patron, you're making this podcast happen. Plus, you get audio extras with every episode, and you get access to our Discord channel where we hang out all the time. And you're going to learn a lot about my two new kittens if you join that Discord. So on top of all of the important political and literary conversations… Kittens. So think about it. So All cute. that could be yours for just a few bucks a month. Anything you give goes right back into making our opinions more correct and feeding those kittens. So find us at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. Okay, let's get objectivist. Yeah, <laughs> let's get individualist, baby. <laughs>
0: All right, so I found a really fascinating article from 2016 from Vanity Fair about the cult of Ayn Rand in Silicon Valley, which we'll of course link to in the show notes. Annalie, I'm going to send you a quote from this article to read. Okay,
1: perhaps the most influential figure in the tech industry, after all, isn't Steve Jobs or Sheryl Sandberg, but Ayn Rand. Jobs' co founder, Steve Wozniak, has suggested that Atlas Shrugged was one of Jobs' guides in life. For a time, Kalanick's Twitter avatar featured the cover of The Fountainhead. And Peter Thiel, whose dissatisfaction with a gawker story led him to underwrite a lawsuit that eventually killed off the site, and who made the outre decision to publicly support Donald Trump, is also a self-described Rand devotee. At their core, Rand's philosophies suggest it's okay to be selfish, greedy, and self-interested, especially in business, and that a win-at-all-costs mentality is just the price of changing the norms of society. As one startup founder recently told me, quote, they should retitle her books, it's okay to be a sociopath, unquote. And yet most tech entrepreneurs and engineers appear to live by one of Rand's defining mantras. The question isn't who is going to let me, it's who is going to stop me. Whoa. I know. I really feel like I hear these ideas running underneath a lot of the slogans that have come out of Silicon Valley in the last 10 years, like move fast and break things, which was a Facebook slogan. And it's, it's funny because a lot of these industry leaders that we're talking about, like Kalanick and Musk and um, even Bill Gates, you know, they embrace this kind of ideology of elitism and anti-populism, like, you know, embracing the idea of great men leading us forward. And yet they spend their time creating these social media technologies that allow mobs of people to get together and harass individuals. So... Are these powerful billionaires just paying lip service to Ayn Rand, or do they actually follow through on her beliefs?
0: A little of both. I mean, a lot of people seem to embrace Ayn Rand purely because she justifies getting rid of government regulation, but then they skip all of the parts that they don't like, such as her hatred of crony capitalism and her distrust of nationalism and racial identity. She was very strident in her hatred of racism. Hmm. And I just read a recent book about Ayn Rand called Mean Girl by NYU professor Lisa Dugan, which is it's a super quick read. I read it on one plane flight, and it's a really good crash course on Randianism. And Lisa Dugan has a section where she talks a lot about Rand's influence on the tech industry, and she quotes extensively from Douglas Rushkoff, who at the time had written an essay about how he spoke to hedge fund billionaires who wanted to retreat from society, and that Essay eventually became the core of Rushkoff's latest book, Survival of the Richest, which a lot of people have mentioned that this feels very Randian.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think Rushkoff is an interesting figure in Silicon Valley because for his whole career, which goes back to the 1990s, he's been this voice in the wilderness basically saying, hey, you know, these capitalists who don't believe in rules and don't believe in regulations are actually kind of a problem. And he'll give us these really interesting inside looks like in Survival of the Richest, which is kind of almost like a, a tour through the, the boardrooms and the playrooms of Silicon Valley. And he'll talk to these guys, most of whom are men, and find out like ha- what drives them. And a lot of it comes back to these Randian ideas of winner take all, but also an obsession with eugenics, basically, and this this notion that certain people are just inherently superior due to their genes and that there needs to be, like, breeding programs to produce more people like that. And so there's just a lot of obsession with both her ideas and kind of stuff that people have pulled out of her ideas that might not have been there in the first place.
0: But but tell us about the shock colors, Annalie.
1: Right. So, uh, in that initial essay that uh, Rushkoff published, um, he talks about being at a meeting with a bunch of billionaires who are worried about what's going to happen after the inevitable dystopia arrives. And they're trying to think about, well, I'm in my, you know, castle with like 12 foot cement walls. Like, how do I prevent the servants who are caring for me from rising up and rebelling? And so they're talking very seriously about. Well, people who work for me will have shock collars so I can, you know, uh, hurt them anytime they try to rebel or or disobey me. And Rushkoff is just sitting there like, I can't believe these guys are seriously talking about building bunkers like in an Ayn Rand story and using shock collars to control the masses.
0: Or keeping the food under lock and key so that only you have access to the food. Because the idea is that if this, once this dystopia happens, money will be worthless. So you have to keep your armed guards under control some other way. And yeah, that, that bunker where they're going to hole up with their armed guards who they're electrocuting whenever they mm-hmm. step out of line, That's people. a lot of people have compared that to Galt's Gulch which is the place in Atlas Shrugged where all of the geniuses and the super-hyper-capitalist leaders of society retreat to when they decide to just, like, go on strike and leave behind the rest of society. And, you know, whatever I think that dystopian fiction is too simplistic and far-fetched, as we're going to discuss in next week's Audio Extra MIDI episode I think about this notion of, like, billionaires holding up and, like, putting electric collars on their 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 henchmen. And then I'm like, well,
1: maybe not. It's funny because when I first came out to San Francisco and was writing about it as a tech journalist in the early 21st century, people called this area of San Francisco where people were engaging in making websites and stuff. They called it multimedia gulch. And I wonder if they were referring to Galt's Gulch at that time.
0: Probably. But yeah, so, I mean, Lisa Dugan kind of talks about how the difference between Galt's Gulch and this survival bunker where Rushkoff's billionaires want to hide out is that there's a lack of optimism in the survival bunker. John Galt and his followers you know, they're responding to this highly regulated, over-controlled society Mm -hmm. where the welfare state has gotten out of control. And they're going to retreat to their private paradise so that they can eventually return to the world and rebuild once everything has fallen apart without them. But Rushkoff's billionaires, they're just going to hide away forever. And of course, the world is going to be ruined permanently due to things like climate change, which could have been averted through due to collective action, but the billionaires just want
1: to run and hide. So what does Dugan think is the appeal of Rand to Silicon Valley leaders? So Lisa Dugan describes the, the core
0: of Rand's philosophy as quote, optimistic cruelty, which I love Whoa. that. Um and she talks a lot about how lustful, and Ayn Rand's writing is, where everything is highly erotic and sexy, including very square-jawed, like, manly men who dominate and ravish the brilliant women that they desire. And it's like everything is very heightened and emotional and kind of romantic in her books. And Lisa Dugan describes Rand's novels, which is another phrase I love, as conversion machines that run on lust. And she says about Ayn Rand's ideal man, his sexual magnetism is tied to his surly, casual cruelty. And Lisa Dugan appeared on The Spectator's book club podcast in 2021, and this is what she had to say about like, how Silicon Valley understands Rand.
1: I mean, she's anti nationalist, you know, really overwhelmingly anti nationalist. She was militantly ferociously fiercely anti fascist and anti authoritarian right, and then leave aside the fact that she was an atheist and and an anti um an anti fascist so basically, these people are cherry picking a lot of the sort of lone genius ideas from her work and then ignoring the core of her teachings. And it seems like a lot of her biggest fans are authoritarians, whereas her work was really anti-authoritarian.
0: Yeah, and in that same podcast interview, Dugan makes a really important point, which is that one of Rand's great strengths as a writer is that she is excellent at making the most mainstream, dominant ideologies appear as though they're a marginalized, oppressed position that people are going to be persecuted for holding. And that is a big motif of today's right-wing policies. It's like... The the people who are in charge, the people who dominate everything, the billionaires, see themselves as victimized, oppressed, and marginalized. And Rand is an author who provides a lot of fuel for that. She turns somebody who is basically king of the world into like the poor oppressed outsider. So we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about who Ayn Rand was and also hear from Matt Zwolitsky about what she actually believed in. <laughs>
1: Okay, so back to the beginning. What's the deal with Ayn Rand? Who was she?
0: So Lisa Dugan's book is pretty fascinating, um, and I learned a lot about her. Ayn Rand was born to a Jewish family in Russia in 1905. Her original name was Elisa Rosenbaum, and she was traumatized by the upheaval of the Bolshevik Revolution, and when she finally made it to the United States, she immediately made a beeline to Hollywood, where she tracked down legendary movie director Cecil B. DeMille, who she was obsessed with. And, you know, she worked for DeMille for a while, eventually becoming a screenwriter, but... She was disillusioned with DeMille because she felt like he was chasing box office success or trying to win the approval of the masses instead of just following his own unique, brilliant vision. And that Mm -hmm. kind of set the, the tone for the rest of her life. Like, she, even though DeMille could have been seen as like an archetype of like an Ayn Rand hero, because he's obsessed with like trying to please the masses, he's, he's, kind of compromised. Also, apparently her earliest attempts at creative writing included real-person fanfic about William Hickman, a real-life serial killer who kidnapped and disemboweled a young girl.
1: Whoa. Okay. I don't even want to know what was going on there. Um, probably he was exercising his will over this girl. <laughs> um, I don't so, know. It's, so uh, yeah. So she became a novelist after the serial killer fanfic?
0: Yeah, and her first published book was We the Living, a realist novel set in the Soviet Union about individuals struggling against communism. Then she turned around and published Anthem, a dystopian novel about a world where individuality is crushed. Her most famous novels were The Fountainhead, about a brilliant architect who struggles against society's mediocrity and eventually blows up a public housing project because his creative vision has been compromised. Oh, what? Which I feel like actually they did a riff on that in Tuca and Bertie. Yeah, I was I feel just like thinking Tuca that. Tuca and Bertie was like, I wonder if that was intentional. I need to find out. Yeah,
1: there's an episode where Bertie's boyfriend, Speckle, who's an architect, is working on a public housing project. And it's kind of the opposite of an Ayn Rand thing because he really wants to do something that's good for people. But then he keeps running up against all these fat cat investors and bureaucrats Mm -hmm. who keep changing his vision. And finally, it's just this horrible condo building.
0: I'm really wondering, like, if... uh, if if that episode, we should try to find out. Anyway, uh, if we do find out, we'll talk about it in the Discord. Yeah. And then her most famous novels, Atlas Shrugged, which we already talked about a little bit, where there's this sort of overregulated welfare state that crushes the spirits of the most innovative and brilliant individuals by, like, putting pointless rules onto them until finally the genius elite, as we said earlier, go on strike and go form their own separate, like, ideal society in a hidden place called Galt's Gulch
2: protect the security of our fellow citizens. All copyrights shall be transferred to the federal government. All wages and other forms of income are hereby frozen. A device harvesting limitless energy without fossil fuels. You don't understand the power they have. The government takes what they want and taxes what they leave behind.
0: Part of what I loved about Atlas Shrugged is that the regulations that the people in charge are pushing are kind of like a funhouse mirror version of liberalism. Like at one point, they pass a law called the anti-dog-eat-dog bill, which basically requires successful companies to become less successful and less competitive so that they don't drive unsuccessful companies out of business. And Why would anybody want that? I mean, I don't understand why progressives would want that. I definitely, like, I think that progressives might want to nationalize some industries, but the idea of, like, no, we're going to keep private industry, but we're going to regulate it so that no company can be more more successful than any other company. That's just weird.
1: It feels like she's sort of talking about the woke mind virus or something.
0: A little bit. And, like, you know, one of the things I like about Ayn Rand's fiction is that it's a world where, like, People are kind of poly and there's no sexual jealousy. Like women like Dagny Taggart, who's one of the heroes of Atlas Drugged, can just hook up with whoever they want and nobody ever gets jealous. Also, nobody ever gets pregnant except for like one person who we briefly meet. Awesome. And I reviewed all three Atlas Drugged movies and we can link to those in the show notes.
1: Yeah, I like that vision too. I mean, I hope that we don't have to get into like a world of, you know, authoritarian individualism for ladies to just like you know fuck around and not get pregnant (laughs) so okay Did Ayn Rand write any novels after Atlas Shrugged?
0: No, she didn't. And she just switched to writing nothing but nonfiction for the rest of her life. And she kind of pivoted to become a lecturer and kind of like a public intellectual, Mm -hmm. thanks to this giant circle of admirers that she gathered around her, who included future Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan and her disciple-slash-lover, Nathaniel Brandon, and also Brandon's wife and her cousin. And, you know, she basically, she stopped writing fiction, even though, as Dugan points out, Pretty much nobody reads Ayn Rand's nonfiction except for her most devoted admirers. Hmm. And according to Dugan, at least, uh, Ayn Rand fell into a deep depression after she finished Atlas Shrugged, in partly because she had been allegedly taking Benzedrine to fuel her writing, and oh. she ended up going through a long withdrawal period. And then and it all kind of fell apart for her in the long, late 60s, where she had kind of her inner circle kind of fractured, and the end of her life was actually pretty sad. And so I was curious to learn more about Rand's thought and why so many people find it compelling, so I talked to philosopher Matt Swalinski with University of San Diego. So I'm so lucky now to be joined by Professor Matt Swalinski, a philosophy professor at University of San Diego, and the co-author of a brand new book about the history of libertarianism called The Individualists. Thanks for joining
2: us, Matt. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I've been reading your Book your awesome book, the the individualists, which kind of talks about how the history of, of libertarianism is actually more diverse than people realize, It includes anarcho-communists. It includes people who started from became to libertarianism through fighting against enslavement in the nineteenth century, and you know that the notion of property rights can take on many different meanings depending on who you're talking to and what you consider property. So you know, do you think that people unfairly kind of boil libertarianism down to just this one idea of I'm in it for me and everybody else can just, you know, suck on a whatever.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that I think that's true of libertarianism. I think that's true of of Rand's ideas in particular. Like, So, you know, there's every once in a while. Um, you know the media gets it in its head to write some piece about Rand and her influence on you know whoever's in power at the moment, whether it's Donald Trump or Paul Ryan or whatever. And so i was I was reading this this piece, you know, in, in prep for the interview that The Guardian published on Ayn Rand a few years back, talking about her influence on Trump, mm-hmm. and a lot of Silicon Valley elites. And the way they summarized their philosophy was like basically greed is good. It's okay to be a, it's okay to be a sociopath, right? Don't worry about the sheep out there. Um, you know, you trample on them if you can. That's that's just not Rand's view. Uh, Again, she her view was about individualism, but it was about individualism with integrity. And for her, individualism meant standing on your own two feet and not trying to live off others as a parasite. And that doesn't just mean like you know being on welfare, which you know Rand probably thought it did, but it also means like defrauding other people or trying to get by and make money in a dishonest way, making money was not the highest goal for Rand. I
0: mean she says money is the root of all good. She actually says that at one point.
2: It's a it's a symbol of good, right? Because like if it's properly earned the way you earn money in a capitalist society is by offering somebody something of value, right? If if I make my fortune by creating some new product that makes everybody's life better, then that money is, in a sense, it's a symbol of my virtue. It's a it, an, an, an effect of my virtue. But if I make my money by defrauding you, by lying you, by cheating you, or even just by slavishly catering to the lowest common denominator in the marketplace, that, for Rand, is nothing to be proud of. Uh, and in fact, if you, if you read The Fountainhead, which I think is her, is her best novel by far much better than Atlas Shroud. But if you read The Fountainhead, right, it's a story about these architects. Uh, and, and the hero of the story, Howard Rourke, is this guy who has a vision of you know what architecture should be. And he sticks to that vision even when it means that he passes up on a lot of very lucrative deals. Uh, meanwhile, his colleague, Peter Keating, is just this this weasel right who has no vision who has no integrity but who wants to do whatever he can to advance his career and and that person Rand, thinks like that's that's the anti-hero that's exactly who you should not try to emulate um uh, so it's not at all about you know just making money it's about in a sense i think being true to yourself right having having an idea uh, and carrying through with that idea, even if it's even if it's not popular, even if it's not the way to financial success.
0: Do you think that these Silicon Valley billionaires understand Rand?
2: I, I doubt they understand her in any kind of deep level. Right? Like, there's a lot of a lot of Silicon Valley folks who who've talked about Rand, who've mentioned her as an influence. Right? Like, so Steve Jobs is supposed to have regarded right. as, as guides of his life, and Peter Thiel and the um, you know Travis. Uh, what's his name from? Kalinik, yeah, uh, from Uber. You know, I'm I'm sure they probably read a book by Rand and and liked it, and uh, you know maybe felt a little inspired by it, but I I doubt they've kind of delved deeply into the philosophical conundrums uh, that that Rand raises. Like you know, like like algorithm, like what does Rand have to say about algorithms, right? Or what right. is consistent Randian about the use of algorithms? She
0: hated Cecil B. DeMille. Like she worked with him, and then she decided that he was pandering to the masses. And so yeah. I sort of wonder what she would have made of social media.
2: Yeah, I mean, and and how much of that is is Rand's personality, her own idiosyncratic personalities, uh, and how much of it is is her philosophy, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. how much of that should we you know who who think that Rand was onto something try to take on from her, uh, and and how much should we discard? I don't think there's there's any really easy answers to those questions, uh, you know. I think again, what what a lot of these Silicon Valley people are responding to in Rand's work is this is this individualism, this um, this glorification of entrepreneurship, uh, of, of forging your own path in in the world of creating something new. That I think is inspiring and and distinctively Randian. Like you don't see a lot of that elsewhere in philosophy. Right, even even still today, we don't see a lot of that. It's you know, political philosophers. I'm I'm, a, I'm trained as a political philosopher. We talk a lot about political systems and economic systems, and 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 how well they do at distributing wealth. Right, like is it fair that capitalism creates this inequalities, so where some people have more wealth than others? Should we have a more socialist system where wealth is more equally distributed? And there's all these debates about what's distributive justice. How should we how should we take this pie of wealth that's right. out there? Right. And slice it up so that everybody gets their fair share. And Rand, I think, directs our attention to what is a really important and neglected question, which is, where does that pie come from in the first place? Right. How does that pie get created, and what do we owe to the people who who baked that pie, in a sense? Right. Uh, where Where is that in our moral and political philosophy? Um, yeah, I that mean... by itself is such an important point that uh, you know she. She deserves a place in the canon just for for that, if nothing else.
0: Yeah, well, and of course, a lot of workers, a lot of unappreciated workers, did a lot to build bake that pie. It wasn't. It's never just one guy just sitting in an office who's like, "I came up with an idea for a pie, and now it exists."
2: Yeah, of course, of course, that's right. But but there's something, you know, there's, there's there are people who offer something special and distinctive, right? That that are maybe not completely irreplaceable, but that, that have a skill or a talent or an idea that without them, you know, we might've had to wait another 10, 20, 30 years before that kind of thing came along. And, you know, society owes a lot to those people for a lot of the comforts that we take for granted sometimes. Right. Um, that's not to say that the people who, who are doing simpler jobs don't deserve credit in their own right too, but, you know, there's Rand was not an egalitarian in the sense <laughs> of, of holding that everybody's contribution is, is the same, uh, or, of equal right. value. uh, Rand thought that like some people bring more to the table than, than others. Uh, and that, that rubs certain modern sensibilities the wrong way. Like we don't, we don't like to feel like, you know, anybody's better than anybody else, but uh, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think she probably had a point there.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know, just in my own and personal experience, whenever there's, whenever we're told there's a lone genius who came up with something on their own, it always turns out that they got that idea from a bunch of people or that, you know, they happened to be in the right place at the right time or that there were, there was, there was more than one person involved in that. And often one person takes the credit and everybody else gets, you know, kicked to the curb. For sure uh, happens a lot in Silicon Valley in fact
2: there's a, there's just a tremendous amount of luck in success but I think you know my and I think most people kind of underestimate the role of luck in their own success but I think if you look at people who are at the top of their game whatever that game is whether it's you know they're an Olympic swimmer or they're you know CEO of a tremendously successful company right what you find is, that they've got everything, right? <laughs> like, so they've they've got hard work, they've got natural talent, and they've got luck. Like everything sort of came together, and that's why they're in the top zero point zero zero one percent of you know whatever endeavor it is that they're involved with. So there's there's luck there to be sure, but there's also there's also a lot of skill, a lot of determination, a lot of hard work, uh, and those things should be should be honored and cultivated to the extent that we can.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, can you tell tell me where to find where people can find you on the internet?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm on Twitter mostly in terms of social media. So you can find me at Matt Zwalinski, and uh, you can you can find my webpage too there with links to. Um, my books. I've got uh, another book coming out next month on the idea of a universal basic income guarantee, which uh, maybe sits a little bit uneasily with my uh, my other book on libertarianism, but uh, I think uh, there's there's some interesting overlap there.
0: I mean, like you it. actually say in your book that some people, some early libertarians really endorsed universal basic income. I feel like it's mentioned in there. But anyway, so yeah, thank you so much. Have a great day. Take care. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to be joined by Matt Ruff, author of Lovecraft Country, but also of Sewer, Gas, and Electric, which features Ayn Rand. And we're going to talk about Ayn Rand in science fiction. So now we're incredibly lucky to be joined by Matt Ruff, author of some of my favorite books, including The Mirage and Lovecraft Country. Matt's most recent book is The Destroyer of Worlds, a sequel to Lovecraft Country. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for joining us.
3: Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, so your novel, Sewer Gas and Electric, which uh, I read when it first came out, features Ayn Rand as a pretty major character in a gonzo, absurdist world where black people have been replaced by androids. What was it about Ayn Rand that seemed to like it fit in with this nightmarish dystopia?
3: Basically, I read Atlas Shrugged in college, uh, and I was fascinated by it and wanted to satirize it. And I didn't love it, but I, I mean, well, I kind of loved it, like I, I in, a, in a nutty way. I like I, I appreciated what Rand was doing, and I thought, in terms of what she was trying to do, it's it's actually quite a brilliant book. But at the same time, I there's just stuff about it just that's just really really goofy. Like I thought her critique of communism was pretty spot on, but. When it comes to capitalism, she's just so very credulous. And part of the problem is her heroes, they don't act like real people. They act like embodiments of reasoned principle. Like her her philosophy of objectivism, it's basically rational self-interest raised to a moral absolute. And reason is the religion of these people. So they act more like Vulcans than human beings. And in fact, there's a rumor that Gene Roddenberry, who was a fan, based the character of Mr. Spock on John Galt. Oh, that's interesting. So the characters act like Vulcans. They are incorruptible. They're very smart, but they're also self-aware. So they are exactly as talented and competent as they think they are. They don't overestimate their abilities. They don't lie. They don't cheat to get advantage. And they have an unnatural degree of agreement with one another since everything is rational and can be understood through reason. So like they one of the things they all agree, like, which of them is the, the smartest and most talented? John Galt is at the top of the heap, and there's no debate about that. And so it's like, imagine if you got Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Warren Buffett, uh, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos all in a room together, and you ask them, hey, guys, which of the five of you is the smartest? And they all, without hesitation, said, oh, it's Bill. Bill is the smartest. It's brilliant. It's nutty, it's goofy, and I I thought it was ripe for satire, and I was kind of surprised that no one had ever done that. But part of the problem was, I think, that a lot of people, if you don't like Ayn Rand, it just makes them so crazy that they lose their sense of humor. So I wanted to write a satire, but at the same time, I was really also fascinated with the story behind the story. It's like, who is this person, and what moved her to write this book? So, And it was a good time to be asking this question, because she had died not long before, and Members of her inner circle were starting to publish tell all memoirs, so I was able to get my answer. And her family were members of the bourgeoisie. They were a Jewish family. Her father owned a drugstore in the building they lived in, so they were pretty well off. But then they lost everything in the Russian Revolution. And um, they actually fled Russia for a while while the civil war was going on. They went to Ukraine and and stayed in the Crimea hoping to avoid the fighting, which didn't work out. And There's this particularly horrible story. While they were there, Rand was attending high school in Crimea, and the Red Army took the city, and they declared what they called a day of poverty, which was the soldiers would go around everybody's house, and if they thought you had too many possessions, they would take the excess to be distributed to people who didn't have enough. So basically, drunk soldiers with guns looting door to door, and... One of Rand's classmates, uh, uh, this girl, the soldiers broke into her house, stole all of her clothing and shot her father to death in the street. And God knows what they did to this girl herself. But so a couple of days go by and the distribution of the loot starts happening. And so they send one of this girl's stolen dresses to the school. It ends up in their classroom with instruction that it's to be given to a needy girl. And you can just imagine how horrifying this is. Poor girl, her dad's dead. One of her stolen dresses shows up. The other kids know what's going on and none of them want it, except the one asshole pro-communist student who puts up her hand and is like, well, I'm in need. I'll take that. So this was sort of Rand's introduction to communism. And, um, and this was her life for many years. And of course, the, the Russian, the, the Red Army won. Eventually, the family goes back to Russia and Rand just gets ready to spend the rest of her life living under this horrible regime. And then... They get a letter from a branch of the family, they had some cousins who had made it out to America and were living in Chicago, and they write to them and say, hey, haven't heard from you since the Civil War started, hope you're okay. And Rand just turned to his mother and said, mom, you've got to get me out of here. I, you write back and tell them I, I want to come visit. And so that's what they did. They Over many months, they arranged for Rand to leave the country and go visit the relatives in Chicago, obviously with the idea that she would never come back. And so she made it out, and she was the only member of her immediate family who did. She never saw her parents again. They later starved to death um, during the Siege of Leningrad in World War II. But Rand escapes. She comes to America determined to become a famous novelist. In
0: Uh, sewer gas and electric Rand is brought back as a kind of hologram inside of a lantern that the main character carries around and it's sort of a jimmy cricket figure i remember Rand in that novel as being very kind of hectoring and very kind of like this very strident little person inside a lantern like yelling about selfishness while the main character is like trying to navigate this really confusing situation how do you feel like that's satirizing Rand and how do you feel like that brings the absurdity of
3: her worldview to the surface I find her a fascinating character, and I'm actually quite sympathetic to her and and what she was trying to do. I still think the the characterizations in the book are are jokey and easy to make fun of, but right away I decided, okay, I want to satirize this, but I want to play fair, and I want to find a way to bring Rand herself into my novel so that she can speak for herself, so Mm. that she can sort of say her piece but also force her to engage with people who see things differently, which is something she didn't often do in real life. Like, she, she'd she argue with anyone, who mm-hmm. she didn't like formal debate because she assumed, I'm right, and anyone who's smart enough should see that, so why should I debate these human rights issues in public? It doesn't make sense. So read my novels and you'll understand that I'm right unless there's something wrong with you. So that was what I was trying to do. I I was trying to play fair with her, and I, I wanted to get her side of the story. I didn't just want to dunk on her for her beliefs. But at the same time, you know, yeah, I don't have a problem making fun of people I disagree with, even if I like them personally. So that was the motivation behind all that.
1: Yeah. I wanted to um, follow up and ask you about Ayn Rand's influence because she is one of the best-selling sci-fi writers ever. And I'm wondering if you think her influence on science fiction or speculative literary fiction can be compared to, like, Asimov or Heinlein or some of these sort of great white men of the 20th century?
3: I, You know, it's funny. I don't actually, I mean, I think you can classify some of her works as science fiction. Like Atlas Shrugged kind of fits because of the dystopian and yeah. obviously there's a lot of science fictional aspects to it. And um, Anthem. Anthem is very clearly science fiction. Yeah, it's like 1984 if the thought police were totally incompetent. Yeah, it's, but I think Rand really saw herself as, as a romantic and I think she would, you know, describe Atlas Shrugged as more of a philosophical romance, the core of it is really this this conflict between heroic individualism and evil collectivism, and I think that's really the core of all of her novels. Um, but th- at the same time, she wasn't afraid of getting genre cooties, like, so she would happily use genre tropes, you know, science fiction tropes, but also action-adventure tropes. I mean, Dagny mm-hmm. Taggart literally wears a cape like a superhero, and, you know, there's a pirate in the story, and so... She's not afraid to 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 do that but I think at her core she doesn't see herself as being restricted to any one genre she's just writing these this these philosophical romances about about so I don't know I think for that reason probably she's not seen as part of the genre by a lot of people and so within the genre I think she would have she might have impact on on you know the the more libertarian writers but I think outside the genre in, in a societal level I think she had a much wider effect than even Heinlein, just because she had an effect on a lot of politicians and a lot of real captains of industry her, found her work very flattering. So within the genre, I'm not so sure. I don't think so. And I think particularly, you know, during the 60s and, and 70s where, where things were much more liberal within science fiction, I think a lot of people just reviled her for her politics and didn't really think about that, weren't, weren't really interested in, in getting to understand her. So, so yeah, I don't know that she's had that much impact within the genre itself.
0: So do you see Ayn Rand as fundamentally a tragic figure? Like, she had this early trauma with the Russian Revolution that she was never really able to get past. And, you know, her works are full of all this stuff about how sexual jealousy is bad. But at least according to the recent biography of her that I read, her inner circle fell apart because she was so jealous of her lover's new girlfriend, Nathaniel Brandon. Do you think that—do you see her as a tragic figure or do you see her as just someone who is, has a very different
3: way of thinking than you? I mean, in in some ways, yeah, I I certainly she lacked the self-awareness, I think, that that her characters had or that she projected into her characters. And I think she would have been a lot happier if she just understood that, you know, it's not all perfectly rational. And she just couldn't understand, you know, uh, raw emotions, even her own. She was very repressed, I think, about some of what her real motivations were. There always had to be a logical explanation for it, like she didn't believe in an obligation of charity but she could be generous to people but she would justify it by saying well i'm just you know i'm doing it because you know i'm doing this for myself because it makes me happy to see this person doing better or it makes me happy to donate to this person it can't be that somebody needs something for me and i have a certain obligation as a fellow human being to try to help them because she couldn't understand that you could you could have that feeling and not carry it to the crazy extreme where you have to give up everything or you have to, to hurt yourself to help others. And I think she she would have been a happier person if she had been able to, but you can understand coming from her background why that she just didn't even want to go there. So um, I, I think in that sense, yes, she is a tragic figure, but the tragedy is balanced by the fact that, you know, she, she also succeeded quite a bit. She had great success. She had a very good life in some ways.
1: And I feel like her work is coming back into vogue much more now, like, in the last, like, five years or so um, than it was before. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that, like, why she's so perfect for this moment in the tech industry, um, as opposed to, say, in the 70s or 80s. Like, what's going on now that's making Ayn Rand seem so vital?
3: I wonder about that, too. It's funny, my wife and I were talking about this yesterday because one of the things, as you get older, you realize people who were household names when you were young... Completely drop off the cultural radar. And I was kind of wondering, is this going to happen to Rand eventually? And, um, but, you know, she's still selling like, God, more copies of her books a year than I've probably sold during my entire career. So, but I, I, I think that, yeah, she's always going to be popular among like if you if you think you're you know especially if you're young and you think you've you've you understand the world better than the people who've been living in it twice as long as you and you don't understand why we have these high bound traditions and regulations, Rand will flatter that point of view and tell you yeah go out and disrupt and smash the system you know what you're doing, so that that's always going to be very appealing and it's probably just cyclical that you you go through moments where that that reckless attitude really screws up the economy and everything crashes and then we you know couple of years go by and cultural memory sets in and a new generation comes up and it's like, oh, well, but we really understand how to disrupt in the world. So <laughs> it's probably just time's come round for that again. And and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, crypto is going to be great. <laughs> um, we don't need banking regulations. That's silly. Why would we want that? And yeah, so I, I think that's just it. It's, <laughs> yeah, she's the oh perfect. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. She's the perfect justifier for that kind of attitude.
1: Do you have a theory about who John Galt is in the current Silicon Valley pantheon?
3: Who, who would be your pick? There, there isn't one. They, everybody thinks they're John Galt. That's the whole appeal of the character. He's, he's the smartest of all. He's the top of the heap. So anybody, any of those guys in that room trying to decide who the smartest guy is, they're going to think it's them.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us, Matt. This was so awesome. Could you just tell us where folks were to find you on the internet?
3: Yes, the website is www.bymattruff.com. It's uh, b-y-m-a-t-t-r-u-f dot com. And um, yeah, you can read all about my books. The latest one is The Destroyer of Worlds, uh, Return to Lovecraft Country. And uh, yeah, and Sewer, Gas, and Electric is there too. So
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Yay. Have a great rest
1: of your day. Thanks for having me on, guys. <laughs> Wow. That was so interesting to hear Matt Ruff's relationship with Ayn Rand. He's really like developed a kind of empathy for her that I would not have expected. So are there other authors whose work about Ayn Rand really jumps out at you as being um, similar to Matt Ruff in the the way that it's engaging with her ideas?
0: Yeah. I mean, so there have been other creators who did Riffs on or responses to Ayn Ayn Rand. Famously, Rush had an album called 2112, where the first side of the album is basically a 20 minute kind of science fiction, you know, suite that kind of deals with like a version of Ayn Rand's anthem, where it's sort of like, you know, about escaping from an oppressive dystopia.
1: And I'll say, like, as a kid who grew up in the suburbs listening to Rush, that's something that shows up in a lot of their work. It's not just in 2112. Like, they have a lot of science fictional songs that are about, like, the glory of the individual and how Mm -hmm. terrible and conformist life is in in the suburbs and how great it is to have, like... (laughs) There's, like, one song they have that's called Red Barchetta that's all about how cars have been made illegal by, like, evil, you know, eco-minded people and, like, how great it is that the character has a car that he's hidden away and drives around. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, I thought we liked ecology. I- I'm so confused.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I know we talked about that song in the in the automobile episode a while yeah. back. Um, but for my money, like, apart from sewer, gas, and electric, the most compelling kind of response to Ayn Rand in science fiction is uh, the story Emergency Skin by N.K. Jemisin, which came out in 2019 yes. as part of a uh, a series on Amazon. And you could listen to it on Audible. I actually really like the Audible version. The voice cast is really good.
1: Yeah, it's really terrific.
0: And basically, Emergency Skin kind of turns Atlas Shrugged on its head. In Emergency Skin, the kind of genius, you know super rich you know innovators the kind of the people who flee to galt's gulch in atlas shrugged have left earth and gone I think, I think a thousand light years away to a new planet that's tidally locked and they're basically they've created their ideal society on this other planet but they need to send someone back to earth to collect hela cells which are basically like cells from henrietta Lex. and this so it's kind of about this person returning to Earth, expecting Earth to be just a desolate wasteland, because when the founders of this new ideal world left, Earth was sort of falling apart, and everything was like a dystopia. But this person, surprise, surprise, returns to Earth and finds that actually the environment has been repaired, humanity is thriving, everybody's happy, and it's because as soon as this billionaire class left, and as soon as these kind of hyper-capitalist people left, everybody else got their shit together and realized that they actually needed to cooperate and take care of each other, that was the only way humanity was going to survive.
1: Yeah, and there's all these really great details in the story, which are almost verbatim taken from Ayn Rand ideas, where um, we're hearing the story, especially if you listen to it as an audiobook, you're hearing it from the point of view of an AI that represents the, the great founders of this Galt's Gulch type place. Yes. And so this voice, which is a male British accent voice, I is explained to our main character like what the meaning is of Earth and why it's so important to not be kind of dirtied by the people of Earth. And so what we learn is that the Galt's Gulch people have eliminated women from their society. Um, they only have white men who they manufacture using this small amount of, of cell cellular material that they have. And they are living by this, like, ruthless capitalist ideal where only a tiny group of people are allowed to have skin. And, and of course, it has to be white skin, but everybody else lives inside these bags and they can't even weird. have a body unless they're kind of given... Um, uh, a stat, a higher status. So the char- the main character has gone to Earth to get these cells in order to get a skin, like, because he wants to be, you know, part of the elite. But when he gets to Earth and he sees all these, like, happy people who are, like, all different colors and different ages, and some of them are, like, you know, old, some are disabled, they're all different from each other. He's like, wow, these people are really beautiful. Like, wait, why is it that we only want to have white men and, like, female robots whose job is just to provide pleasure. Um, and there's all these really mm-hmm. funny bits where basically this this AI is explaining, like, we do not need women. We simply need robots that will keep our penises in working order.
0: <laughs> so, I know. There's a lot of really weird stuff about penises in that story. It's kind of delightful. Yeah. And like, part of what I love about that story is how Sly, like, N.K. Jemisin is in terms of like introducing all of these little kind of like these creepy little details about like, we never get to really see the kind of ideal society on the tidally launched planet, but we hear a lot about it and it just, it sounds it's heav- heavily stratified. Most people are living in really horrible circumstances and there's just like this tidy elite who are through their merit because they're the genius founders. You know, they get to kind of have all this, you know, they get to actually have experience life in a proper way and it's it's definitely like it's a commentary on our society now but it's also a really really strong rejoinder to ayn rand because it just shows that yeah if we start taking care of each other if we actually abandon selfishness and you know think of ourselves as interdependent we could all thrive like they say at one point there turned out there actually was enough food there was enough resources for everybody if we just stopped hoarding and once the hoarders left. What I love about it is that the main character who arrives on Earth is just... Everybody's just super nice to him. Like, he's expecting to be captured. He's expected to be attacked. He tries to take a hostage. They're all like, oh, you're really scared. Oh, no, it's okay. We won't hurt you. Oh, you came here to get these cells. Here you go. Here they are. You know, you can leave now or you can stay. We don't care. Like, they're yeah. just like... They're not threatened by him. They don't respond as if, like, he's in any way a problem. He's just like, oh, it's, this, it's one of these guys.
1: Yeah, it's one of those bag people again. Um, also, uh, there's a sort of sly reference to the HeLa cells, which are right. an actual cell culture in our real world that are cancer cells that have been used for experiments for decades now. And as the book, the very popular book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks points out, is that these these were cells that were taken... Without permission from a black woman who is dying of cancer. So, mm-hmm. this entire separatist white male civilization only exists because they're using the cells from a black woman, which is pretty on the nose, but also it's a great you know, she never says that overtly. She just mentions the HeLa cells and it's like, if you know, you know. <laughs>
0: yeah. I, I liked how that was just this, like, I missed it at first until you pointed that out to me. Yeah. And like, you know, I mean, it's, it's funny because like emergency skid, it's very kind of bold allegory. It feels very much like an inverse of Atlas Shrugged. It's, it's not trying to, have a, it's there's not a lot of ambiguity in it but i think that's part mm-hmm. of what make what i love about it is that it's just it's a very kind of like turning atlas drug on its head in a very elegant way
1: yeah it's it's a kind of fairy tale and yeah um and it's an imagining of a utopian world you know instead of imagining a dystopia it's like actually no um the galt's gulch people they're the dystopia Um, They're not they're not fleeing from a dystopia. They're actually fleeing from a better world. And they've Mm -hmm. gone and set up their own weird thing. And what I also love is that in this sort of utopian future, they say, hey, man, go for it. You guys want to go have your weird separatist like white male culture? Go ahead. We don't mind. You
0: do you. Yeah. You do
1: you. And they actually I think say that one of them is just like, hey, man, you do you like have fun. Enjoy the cells. (laughs) See you later. (laughs)
0: Yeah, definitely everybody should hunt down um, Emergency Skin by N.K. Jemisin if you want like an antidote to Ayn Rand. So... Thanks so much for joining us. This has been Our Opinions Are Correct. If you just randomly stumbled on us, please do subscribe. You can subscribe to us anywhere that you get your podcasts. If you like our podcast, please leave a review. It helps a lot. And if you really want to, like, become part of the Our Opinions Are Correct family, we do have a Patreon, as we mentioned at the start of the show. And if you subscribe to that, you can join us on Discord. Um, And we're also on all of the socials. We're on Mastodon. Uh, We're on TikTok. We're on Instagram. Uh, where else are we? I think that's pretty yeah. much it. Yeah, there's.
1: I. I don't. I don't think there's any other social platforms out there. I haven't heard of any.
0: No, that's that's all yeah. there is. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much to our incredible just brilliant audio producer Veronica Simonetti. Thanks so much to Chris Palmer and Katia Lopez Nichols for the wonderful new music that we've got and thanks again to you for listening and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode, but if you're a patron we'll be seeing you in Discord. Bye!